preaching of God's Word than is in this Gospel, Luke, and chapter 22, there at verses 39 and 40. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, we read, And He came out and went as He was wont to the Mount of Olives, and His disciples also followed Him. And when He was at at the place, He said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. These two verses introduce to us that very solemn and yet wondrous scene of Gethsemane. And so here is the garden of anguish. As we read the whole of this portion, you'll remember that as he prayed, he prayed as it were sweating drops of blood. Such was the labor and intensity that he was exercising in his prayers. And yet you'll also notice in the verse that's before us that this was not an occasional or, as it were, an every once in a while event. Luke records it quite simply. He came out and went as he was wont, as his custom was, as his habit was. He was a man of prayer. You remember earlier in this Gospel, Luke 11, that when his disciples saw Jesus pray, they could not help but say, teach us to pray. And we know this relatively in our own experience. When it is we hear someone lead in prayer or we witness that, perhaps we visit someone and we have the privilege to be next to their room and we hear them laboring in prayer and we want to have something of that as well. Well, the disciples had that experience, Luke 11, and the Lord then taught them to pray. Here we see his exercise of prayer itself. And so we rightly refer to those familiar words, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on, as the Lord's Prayer. But it's not properly the Lord's Prayer because he's teaching us how to pray. Here we witness the Lord's Prayer. Here we witness the Lord praying. Here we see what prayer should be. Here we see that it is far from the mere recitation of certain words, however right, however sound. It's not the nice ordering and all other things that may be of help and service to our thoughts and certainly when leading others in prayer, necessary. But it is truly the outpouring of one's heart unto God in heaven. and That's what we see Christ taking up. He's not sitting down casually and now going to recite a few words. He's not going to make sure he has everything, as it were, in the form that others would have it. But he comes face to face with his face with his grief, and yet face to face with his father. And remember that this was his custom. He was, and brethren, if we have eyes to see it, he still is a man of prayer. Right now in heaven. He's interceding. And it is when we draw near to Him by faith and remember that He intercedes for us, we still have the same effect that was wrought in the disciples and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Well, you'll notice the text moves on. His disciples are with Him. The eleven now, Judas has gone astray and will show up in this garden knowing where Jesus was because it was His custom to be there. And there's instruction here because Of course, Jerusalem at this time would have been busy. It was the Passover. All sorts of Jews would have assembled there. And so he goes away 
to be less distracted. And there's something there for our instruction, isn't there? That when it is we would wrestle with the Lord, we should purposefully go away and seek out time of solitude to pray. He brings his eleven with him, but as Matthew and Mark remind us, it's then that he leaves uh, several of them there and then takes three of them further along and then he goes, as it were, a stone throw away from those, Peter, James, and John, that he might be with the Father himself. But notice, as he's preparing for that, which we hope to consider in a subsequent Sabbath, it's that he exhorts his disciples. Now, Christ knows fully what's about to happen. He's told Judas, go, what you're going to do, do quickly. He's warned his disciples, you know, this evening the shepherd is going to be smitten and the sheep are going to flee. He told Peter straight to his face, you're going to deny me three times, but when thou art converted, and he encourages him to faithfulness after that. So he knows all that's going to come. He knows what he will face. He knows the depth and the agony that he himself will experience, some of which we read earlier when it is the mockings and the brutal beatings that began, as it were, the whisper of the torment he would experience while upon the cross. All of this was in his eye. All of this was entering his heart. And yet we see here a concern for his people. There's something there for us as well to remember that as properly it is for us to understand that Christ is much taken up with the things concerning his kingdom, he is in the midst of that much taken up with the needs of his people. So it says, When he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that, notice the simple word, ye. Not pray that I enter not into temptation. He doesn't say pray for me. He says pray that ye enter not into temptation. Christ's eye is always upon His people. Even at the most intense of moments, the cross wherein He is made to be sin, made the curse. You remember those touching words that He says, Woman, behold thy son, and man, behold thy mother. He's caring for those around Him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Truly, this day thou shalt be with Me in paradise all while single-handedly quenching, drinking the dregs of the wrath of God, His full concern is the Father's glory and His people's good. We see that here. But it's particularly the substance of what He says that we wish to consider as it comes to us in the context of a suffering and loving Savior. It should move us to consider these words all the more, especially in the context of having seen how Peter so casually cast off the admonition, only subsequently to give in to the temptation. In between those moments, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat. Lord, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go with you. And then he denies Christ. Christ makes eyes with him and he goes out and weeps bitterly. Right in the middle of it all, Christ says to Peter, among others, pray that you enter not into temptation. Notice verse 45. It says that 
when he was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. Surely we ought to have all the more reason to take earnestly his admonition and his exhortation to pray. Temptation. Temptation is the common lot of all men in this world. And though Christ had no sin and could not sin, yet he knew temptation. Remember in Matthew 4, he, after having been baptized as led of the Spirit into the wilderness, to be tempted, tested, tried, and yet found impeccable and perfect. And yet here he enters again upon his own temptation, and his eye yet is upon the temptation of his brethren. Temptation is so common that it is common for us to ignore it. If you want proof of that, you can ask yourself, how much do you pray? Not how many times a week do you have a set part time to pray. That's needed. That's good. But how often are you face planted on your knees? Literally. We talk about bowing our hearts. But when was the last time you bowed your knee and put your face on the ground? and said, Lord, I am nothing. I cannot withstand these things. Do you know what happens to a woman in grief over children? She falls on the ground because she's overtaken with grief, with sadness. When temptation grips you in that fashion, it won't be that you casually go through nice expressions. It will be that your body is racked upon the ground and your soul is pleading for help crying out for assistance. We see that in Christ, who had no sin. We see Him planted upon the ground, crying out. And He comes to His disciples who have sin. And He says, you need to pray. Whereas many ignore it, others presume, as did Peter. And still others, each of us among them, have to confess We have indulged it. We have swished the sweetness of its wine in the mouth of our soul, entertaining the sinful pleasures that it might bring and the satisfaction it might provide us. How is it then that we should overcome temptation? Well, Christ gives us guidance against it here with the simple words, pray. Pray that ye enter not into temptation. Notice just in the words themselves, he doesn't say, pray that you be not tempted. Though it's lawful for us to say, Lord, lead us not into temptation. It's specifically here, he knows they're going to be faced with these trials. He knows that the things which would draw them away are going to be presented. And so he says, pray that ye, notice the word, enter not. That you don't take it up that you don't go through the gateway. You know what a snare is? Where you have this wire or this rope, and it's so fashioned that if the foot goes in or the bait is taken, that it then pulls back and it wraps around the creature, the foot, whatever it is, and they are then caught. And in some sense, Christ is saying the bait is going to be set before you. The snare is around it. Don't enter into it. Well, it's this that we wish to consider by looking at three things. Firstly, understanding temptation. Secondly, entering temptation. And thirdly, overcoming it. 
And when once we understand the heinous, wretched wickedness of sin, we'll then start to see why temptation is so to be opposed and deliberately opposed in prayer. So firstly, understanding temptation. The word itself has to do with a testing, but also in context, a drawing. And so as is quite obvious to each of us, if you've ever been fishing, you don't simply throw a hook out into the water. You bait it because it draws the fish to the hook. Well, similarly, temptations are that way. In general, they face us with an occasion to sin. And so something is provided around us, and this is so universal to various circumstances, it's impossible to identify specifically it's going to be this or that. It can be anything. We see in Luke's Gospel, in this chapter, it's a little servant girl first that tempts Peter. We see elsewhere, it's Satan himself and the power and work of his wickedness. We see in the Scriptures, it can be a king. We see other places, it can be hunger. We see other places, it can be wealth. We see other places it can be family. In other words, temptation is able to come to us by every single circumstance of our lives. Health can be a temptation. Sickness can be a temptation. Good family can be a temptation. Wicked family can be a temptation. A wicked church, false church, a true church, right doctrine, false doctrine. Every one of these things is able to be used in such a way as to entice us to sin. It's more than just the occasion. It is the strong consciousness of its pretended benefits. And so the circumstance comes, and as it were, it's a gateway to something that we at first consider as to be desired. You can see this, in fact, in Christ's temptation recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. You know, Christ is able, as none of us is able, to say that Satan has nothing in him. Satan has something in us. He has the inclinations of our sinful lusts to play upon. Christ had no such sin. And yet he was tempted, and you can see something of the objective nature of it when you look at Matthew 4, and you listen to what Satan is doing. Verse 3, He says, the tempter came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. What's the temptation? Prove to me the truth of this matter. Submit to my terms. And you can see the way that would operate. Well, I am the Son of God, and wouldn't it be right to disclose this and display it and satisfy this charge? Christ sees through it, and He acknowledges Man shall not live by bread alone, etc. What happens next? Verse 5, you see, he takes him up into the holy city and sets him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge concerning thee. Ah, you have an opportunity, Christ, to prove your faith and the veracity of God's Word if you just cast yourself down because then God will keep you up. Jesus responds, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then thirdly, He takes him to an exceeding high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. All these things will I give thee 
If thou wilt fall down and worship me, Christ, of course, responds, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Whereas we without any qualification assert Christ's not only sinlessness, but impeccability, he could not sin. Yet we do not deny the fact that his humanity, as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives, is touched by the pains and difficulties that he must fulfill. And so you can see how Satan is working. Look at the easier way to get what God is saying to you. If you just bow down to me, all these kingdoms will be yours. Now you and I know well enough that Satan is a liar, the father of lies. And though he holds out much and has the semblance of truth to them, we realize that he is indeed lying. And we who have succumbed to his ways on various occasions can point to the scars that prove Satan is a liar. And every satisfaction of lust ends in shame. Well, you can see this further, the way temptation operates in Proverbs chapter 7. So, temptation itself is the presenting of an occasion of sin which often holds behind it some sense of a benefit that can be enjoyed. Well, notice, for instance, Proverbs and chapter 7. Here's an adulteress coming to a young man. Notice the appeals. It's not just simply, you know, let's go and commit adultery. But there in verse 15, Proverbs 7, 15, Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I found thee. Notice, I'm seeking you. I want you. I've decked. I've prepared my bed with uh, coverings of tapestry, with carved works and fine linen of Egypt. Everything's ready. Everything's beautiful. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. For the good man's not home and... He has gone on a long journey. And notice verse 20, will come home at the day appointed. Well, everyone sees quite clearly the sin, adultery. There, we have such clear statement, not only the law of God, thou shalt not commit adultery, but we have elsewhere in the Word of God that there are no adulterers welcomed into heaven. Think of the weight of that. And yet, the appeal is to all of the temporal, sensual pleasures that could be experienced. The certainty relative to what man can promise. There's no chance of us getting caught. There's no ability for us to get caught. My husband is away and he's not coming back until the day marked on the calendar. No one's going to find out. Look at all of the pleasures. What's happening? This is operating, playing with power upon perceived pleasures that would be ours if we simply compromised the truth of God's Word. That's what every temptation does. When you are in a discussion and someone says something you don't like and instantly you want to rage and pop off and spew out those uh, words that would put them in their place and tear them down and you would say, well, it was just indignation and so on, but really, if you're honest, it's really just satisfying your own selfishness and promoting your own cause and not Christ's. That's what temptation is doing. I'll feel better if I just vent against this person. You know, the false counsel of people, if you have an anger problem, get a pillow and start punching it. That's not dealing with the temptation. 
That's not satisfying anything. It may be better than beating somebody, but it's still satisfying this unquenchable anger. You see, the problem with all of it is temptation is leading us to satisfy a short-circuited way of finding pleasure. That's what temptation is trying to do for us. You can have pleasure if you pursue it this way. Now, granted, this way is contrary to God's Word, but look what you'll get if you do this. Look what you'll attain. Look what you'll have. Look what you'll delight in. And so it operates on this, on us this way. It presents these appeals to be satisfied in ways that are contrary to God's Word. And so you can think for a moment, the Scriptures are much about faith and persevering in faith. And why is it so that that has to be the case? Because faith demands that we despise what is seen and trust what is unseen. I trust, I believe, that there is greater pleasure to be found in enduring the grief of the moment, of the season, of the lifetime that I may enjoy the riches of heaven forever. Temptation is trying to present this path to pleasure which is far briefer, far quicker, and yet a path that would cause us to cast off the Lord's way. In us, temptation, as noted, finds something that would be attracted to it. Not just the natural desire to escape pain, which is not sinful in and of itself. Not just the natural desire to have health, which is natural in and of itself. But there is a sinful part in each of us. You see this in James chapter 1. And speaking of temptation, verse 14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There is that in us that is drawn as a magnet to the sinful occasions that surround us that would cause us to find pleasure wickedly. So it operates upon by presenting these circumstances, and yet it appeals to something deep within even the Christian that would say, this would bring you help. This would bring you pleasure. This would bring you gladness. And notice in understanding it when it comes. Again, it can come any time. It can come when it is that we are um, out of the way of duty. As many make the point that David had neglected to go out with the king, with the army unto the battle. And there he is back at his palace and he sees Bathsheba. And it's there that he finds the occasion of temptation. It can be in the very midst of duty. As we see even here, as the apostles are following Christ. And yet, they should experience temptation. And so in other words, there is not some protected place or life or season or circumstance that is free in this present world from the opportunity of temptation. Now, this doesn't mean that we carelessly should say, well, since I can be tempted anywhere, I'm going to just be at the places where I know temptation is going to abound. Surely we ought to flee those places. Joseph didn't say, well, since I'm going to be tempted with Potiphar's wife, I'll just stay put 
He fled, and we ought to flee those things that we realize would be strong inducements to sin. But we shouldn't think that even in the public worship of God, we are to place free from the possibility of temptation. Notice the context. Christ has given them the Lord's Supper. They've been fortified with these signs and seals. Christ has given them warning. He's given them promises. He's come to them. And now He's drawing them with Him. Great intimacy with the Lord. And He's not leaving them and saying, you're going to be in this cell and you're going to be in that cell in isolation. He leaves some of the disciples together. He draws Peter, James, and John and they're together so there's strength in numbers. And yet He says, it's now, though you're with Me, though you're drawn away from the bustle of the city and all of those things, though you're in this place of prayer, it is now that you must pray that you enter not into temptation. Even when with Christ, there is the possibility of temptation. When we understand this, we'll start to see why it is we should pray. And we won't be satisfied anymore with the two minutes, the five minutes that we have to say, well, at least I prayed today. But we will be taken up with the breathing of prayer throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout our year, throughout our life. Well, here is temptation in general. Secondly, consider his expression, enter not, entering temptation. And by this expression, there is implied a difference between experiencing temptation and entering into it. This is an important thing for the Christian especially, because the Christian who over time is made more sensitive to the Uh, beauty of holiness and the love of truth and righteousness and is overwhelmed with grief by even the sight of sin. You read through Psalm 119 and on several occasions the psalmist speaks of the grief that tormented his soul when he saw others sinning. How much more when our own souls are presented and our minds for a moment entertain the thought of sinning. Blasphemous thoughts come out of nowhere. Bitter thoughts plague our hearts for a season and it comes out of nowhere. We're talking with a Christian and then all of a sudden, it's as if we want to point out all of their faults and everything else and we're overtaken with it. Selfishness arises. Well, what is the difference between experiencing and entering? If you go back to the snare, to experience temptation is to be exposed to it, to see it. There's the opportunity, if you will. There's the bait, there's the snare, and it's presented to one's attention. So it's not something that we're mindlessly engaged or surrounded by. It's something that we're attentive to. I see the opportunity. Here it is. I could spout off. I could do that. I could do this. I could avoid this. I could avoid that. Here's the opportunity. And even with that, there may be a strong and powerful presentation of the opportunity. And yet to enter in is to take up the pleasure of that sin. Whether one actually commits the sin or in their own mind with delight relish the thought. There's the difference. The relishing or the actual commission of the sin. So you see it, of course, when Christ is teaching His disciples and said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, 
right? If you say so much as thou fool, you're guilty of the fire of hell. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of the same, right? What's he getting at? It's not that we only enter into temptation when we are guilty of the outward violation of the law of God. It's when our heart finds delight in the entertaining of the thought. So people, they consider all sorts of things as not significant, as not sinful, because they didn't say the words, because they didn't do the thing. They were just thinking it. But then we start to see, that you know, Scriptures testify to us, God judges the heart. God knows the thoughts, the secret thoughts of men. And so in other words, temptation, when we enter into it, is not just our body's activity or inactivity, if we sin by way of omission, but it is a spiritual delight in what is presented to us. And so Christians who have grown in holiness will know something of this by experience when the presentation of sin causes within them an abhorrence. They not only say, well, that's wrong, but they look upon it and say, oh, this is grievous to me. This troubles my soul. They're surrounded by it. They see, as it were, the opportunity to commit it or to indulge in it, but their souls abhor it. Well, they see it, but they're not entering into it. Whereas each of us by experience as well will know what it is to see it, not to engage in it outwardly, but for a moment to find that sinful and twisted delight in thinking the thought. Brethren, you want some examples of this. We need not go into all sorts of descriptions, but I trust that each of you will know this thought. You're in an argument with somebody and you're sort of resisting and resisting and resisting. And then the moment passes and then you can't get out of that argument in your mind and you're thinking to yourself, if I had said this then he would have been put in his place. If I had said that, then she would have been feeling shame. That's entering into temptation. That's, as it were, indulging the pleasure of satisfying your, pr- pr- your pride and getting the one up against another, putting them down. You see, this can be multiplied in so many different ways. From you know, idolatry, you know, wouldn't it be beautiful if we would, as it were, deck the halls with all of the uh, uh, idolatry that plague others today? And wouldn't it be beautiful if we had all of the trappings of sinful and carnal uh, uh, compromises and so on? Wouldn't it be delightful in these things? And you know, all of these things start to uh, weigh upon us and we start to entertain it and say, that would be something. We think, wouldn't it be delightful if I could just let my mouth run and you know, with all of the profanity that marks out the world, then I would have this release and it would satisfy me. Wouldn't it be delightful if I would steal that? I'm not going to, but I just want to entertain it and think about it and oh, how much pleasure would be mine. Wouldn't it be delightful if he was my husband or if she were my wife? Wouldn't it be delightful if that one was my child or that one was my child? And what we're doing is we're starting to indulge in the coveting lust. Though we're not doing anything outwardly, our soul has entered into the snare and is playing with the bait. Christ doesn't do that. In the midst of His temptation here, in the midst of His temptation, Matthew 4, throughout His life, though fully aware 
His soul fully abhorred all of it. Whereas entering temptation is to take up some delight in it. You saw this in James chapter 1. There's an attraction that our souls are drawn after to entertain and to think. You see, this is why the Scriptures often will say different things. Proverbs 4, Keep thy heart with all keeping, with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. We have to watch. And in fact, parallel to this, in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel, you have Christ saying, watch and pray. There has to be a sobriety over watching our hearts. And this is where the world today so wrongly accuses the Puritans of being killjoys and of saying, well, you're just you know, on about things that are you know, little issues and tempests and teapots. And we're saying, no, you misunderstand. It's not a tempest in a teapot. It is a flame brought to a gunpowder keg ready to erupt. That's my heart. My heart is ready. Could you imagine this for a moment, parents? For whatever reason, there is a keg of gunpowder in your children's room. Where they sleep, there's a keg of gunpowder. You would be very watchful, very cautious to ensure that there's not so much as a flicker of anything entering that room. Why? Because you know that as soon as the spark, the slightest of sparks hit, it erupts. You know, a man who was in a boat in the Gulf or in Atlantic, I can't remember, and the engine goes out and the gas is actually pouring out and he's an electrician so he knows how to work things, but he realizes if the pump turns on to evacuate the water, the gas is going to explode. It's going to catch. The slightest of sparks would have been the assurance of his death jumps in as quickly as he can to start bailing out things so that the pump doesn't kick on, knowing that it would take just a spark and the fumes of the gas would erupt. This is how we need to look at temptation. There's no such thing in truth of a little temptation. Because a little spark, though small, is able to elicit a disaster and so Christ warns His disciples against entering in. Don't indulge it in your minds. Certainly don't indulge it with your bodies. Pray. And this leads us thirdly to how it is we overcome temptation. You know, there are helpful books to read, but we ought to put into practice the simple instruction of Christ. So surely you ought to read various books of you know, the early church fathers who wrestled with these things and the Puritans and reformers before them and certain evangelicals today which help us against temptation, which help us to see it and so on. But let's start with Christ's instruction. He says, pray. Now, with Christ saying pray, we go back to this word. We know conceptually you know, what it means when someone prays. And so if we were walking um, out the door and someone were in this little hallway and they had their hands together and their head were down and, you know, you might hear them, you might not, you would look at their posture and say, well, they're praying. Or you who have children, you might be walking through your living room and there's your child upon his or her knees and, you know, their heads are bowed and you say, well, they're praying. Or if you're going through and at an airport, and you see these various people wearing the same colored t-shirts, 
and yet then they're holding hands in a circle and their heads are bowed, you'd say, well, they're praying. You get it. You see the outward thing. But we have to remember what prayer is. The word pray simply means to desire, to lift up, to express a wish as it were. Not wishing as the world says upon a star, nonsense, but rather the desires of our heart being lifted up to God. Now think with that in mind what Christ is saying. If we avoid the word itself, Christ is saying desire that ye enter not into temptation. Let your desire be made known to God that you don't want to enter into it. Make it your heart's desire that you would come to God and say, I don't want that. I don't want to enter into it. And you start to see the wisdom of Christ's teaching of us when He says, when you pray, among other things, say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's fundamentally the same idea. We're expressing a sincere desire. I don't want to engage with that. Not physically, not intellectually, not spiritually. I want to avoid the entering in. Though in your providence it may be that I'm presented with that, though I see it, though it has a strong, as it were, presentation of me, yet my heart's desire is that I would not enter into it. And Brethren, as you start to see that, you'll start to see why there's so little prayer against temptation. Because fundamentally, men don't want to avoid it. Men, carnal men, unconverted men, will never pray to avoid the enjoyment of sinful pleasures. They may pray to avoid certain shameful things. They may be persuaded that that act would then cast shame upon me and it's beneath my dignity and beneath my family and it would cast aspersions upon my status and so on. But fundamentally, they're actually giving in to a different temptation. My glory is preeminent. Christ is getting us to consider Our desire, our inward disposition is to despise the sinful pleasures presented to us, which all of a sudden is far superior to go and say this prayer five times in this day. To go and pray, you know, at these set hours. Set hours may be helpful, necessary even to arrange our days, but He's getting us beyond the rote recitation of words. Now, parents, you need to teach your children to pray. Christ gives us a form and directory and we need to help our children to think through how do we pray. And so we ask them in family worship, okay, would you lead us in prayer or open us in prayer and then I'll close us. And you're listening as much as you're praying as well. And then you can help the child to say, you know, next time you pray, you know, be sure to add something there about praising God. Be sure that you confess sin. Be sure that you remember something to thank God for. Hey, remember that this thing is coming up. Would you, next time you pray, remember to pray. And you're teaching them little by little in their prayer. What you're doing is you're forming, as it were, and directing what their hearts should desire. But it isn't to the end that they would memorize a few phrases and employ them in all of their prayers. You're expanding, as it were, their attention to what they should be desiring. When Christ comes and says, pray that ye enter not, He's not saying get a right form of expression and be sure to say that 500 times over or be sure to include that every time you come to a season of prayer. 
He's fundamentally addressing the heart. And he's saying, your desires need to be that you would not enter in. If that's going to happen, brethren, there are several things that need to take place. The first of which is, we need to see that it is a great evil to be loathed. Namely, sinful satisfaction is that great evil to be loathed. We need to learn to look upon all of the beauties that prevail to our carnality and say every one of them is a lie. This is why in Proverbs, when the adulterer and the adulteress and the harlot comes up, there's often the clear testimony. Look at all the beauties that are presented. And yet her way is the way that leads to death. Dead men are there. Corpses lie there. Putrid stench is actually there. You need to see this. All of the you know, scintillating uh, desires that are presented to us would lead us to the putrid death of damnation. And someone says, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I don't fear hell. I don't fear death. If you're a Christian or a believer, then you despise sin. You hate sin. You love Christ. And this should be something that draws you to desire no entrance into it. This is why, for instance, that the one who prays against temptation will not find satisfaction to be in the courts of temptation, in the presence of temptation. Why would I go there? Because my heart doesn't desire the false pleasures presented in disguise. Brethren, it's not only desiring, but prayer is, as our catechism summarizes the Scripture's teaching, an offering up of our desires unto God. Psalms tell us that we're to pour out our hearts to the Lord. And so this desire against sin, against temptation, against its false pleasures, leads us away from ourselves. Do you see what happened to Peter? Peter, listen, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. No, no, Lord, I've got it. I won't deny you. He had some sincerity of wanting to stand against sin. But instead of drawing near to God and saying, I must have you fortify me. I must have you protect me. He rests in his own pretended strength. So the two things that are needed, first, is a clear discernment of the wickedness of sin, that we would loathe it. But secondly, a firm persuasion that we can't withstand it. There's no one here of himself or of herself, who can withstand the slightest temptation. Not one. If you think that and persist in your thinking, you will stumble at the slightest thing eventually. And your shame will engulf you, as did Peter. Christ is getting us to see what we should loathe, but also directing us to Him alone who can strengthen us to withstand it. And so when we see and we hear stories of martyrs facing the most excruciating torment, and we wonder how were they able to withstand, it's because the Lord gave them grace. But brethren, we should see that as well with the littlest of sins. How is it that we were able to withstand the slightest of things? It's because the Lord has given us grace to withstand it. It's of the Lord and by the Lord alone. Many of you will know Ephesians and its testimony of the armor of God, a passage that 
If we've not yet, we should strive to commit to memory. But it's striking that right before the armor of God, Paul doesn't say, okay, be strong and wearing the armor. He says in verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And that's what prayer discerns. My strength is only in the Lord. My ability to withstand Satan and his snares is only in the power of His might. And if that persuaded us, we would pray more. I will only be a faithful spouse as the Lord gives me grace to do that. I will only be a faithful Christian in these circumstances if the Lord gives me grace to do that. I will be faithful to tell others of Christ as the Lord gives me grace. I will be faithful to withstand temptation as the Lord gives me grace. Then our lives become a perpetual prayer. And so we're transitioning from home to work or home to school or home to a different house. And we're entertaining what's coming, what's potentially going to be there. And we're lifting it up in prayer. We're coming to church and we're saying, what's going to be there? Well, God's Word, but we know Satan despises God's Word. So Lord, help us not to be led into temptation, but to be locked on to Your Word by grace through faith. It is a drawing then of help from God. We heard on Wednesday that we are to cast all our care upon Him because He cares for us. And prayer does this. We cast up that which would most trouble us. And to the Christian, what would most trouble him or her but the shaming of Christ's name. And so we bring that to God and say, You care for me. Give me strength against it. Either lead me not into it, or if You would present it to me, so give me grace that I would be sustained to fight against it by Your strength and by Your power. But this prayer as well as we draw help from God is a communing with Christ. We know, of course, that there is no true prayer without the mediation of Christ Jesus and that we are to pray asking all things in His name. It's not striking that as Christ tells them to pray that they enter not into temptation, that Christ is actually Himself praying. And so He's saying, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Thine be done. He's acknowledging the natural abhorrence of all of the agony and all of the fact of His innocent soul being made to bear the unspeakable sins of His people and being made the object of God's wrath. And He abhors that and loathes that, as we'll see, and yet without sin. And so He says, not as My will is, but as Your will is. Your will be done because ultimately my will is for yours to be done. So Christ is laboring in prayer and he overcomes and we see his submission and it's as if he rises from his posture of prayer and his activity of prayer and he is now strengthened to resist everything. You think of it, he comes and Judas comes there and he gets betrayed with a kiss. If ever there has been a betrayal of such wickedness as Judas, we don't know what it is. Judas's is the most vile. He comes with a token of friendship in order to identify the one he's betrayed, to be led astray, or led away, to be beaten and crucified. And yet Christ comes with a word of reproof. Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Doesn't take things into his own hands. He says to his disciples, not recorded here, don't you understand that if I wanted to, I could call upon the Father and legions of angels would arise? He is 
submitted to the will of His Father, which has come by the exercise of faith and prayer. And so one thing that we have in prayer, as it's offered up to God through Christ, is communing with one who knows prayer and knows what it is to wrestle against it. And so we close with this. In Hebrews in chapter 4, we're to come near to God. And what are we to do in doing this? Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need." follow sports, you know there's this dynamic of the older and experienced players as they're past their prime still being retained so that they can help the younger players develop. And they understand the various things that the younger players are going to face. And that's a natural experience. Well, here it is in perfection. Christ has experienced all of the temptations that you and I will face and has overcome every single one so that we have not a high priest who is unable to be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And it's to Him we come. And it's from Him we ask, give us grace, give us mercy. And so brethren, far from being some idle and pious and detached exercise, It is the lifting up of our desires against sin and temptation unto God in Christ that Christ who knows temptation and has overcome it would be pleased to give us strength that to His glory we also would overcome. Prayer is far more than just a device that is taken up and employed It is the communing with Christ who alone is able and has overcome and is able to strengthen us that we by Him would overcome as well. So brethren, this temptation can be staggering to us and overwhelming to us and we would, as it were, lose our minds to consider it in its fullness. But the encouragement when we open up His remedy is immense because we're drawn to God in Christ who is able and willing to provide us help, that we then might enter not into temptation to His glory. Would you stand with me for prayer?